thought we would uh, give you the dis- disclaimer because I wasn't sure some of you would get that it was comedy because uh, we're politically correct in this church. Um, yeah, some of you didn't get that. We are going to look at six questions today, six C's that will help you understand whom to vote for in this election and uh, actually in any election. You can apply this to any time period that you are alive, that your children are alive, and they can ask these six questions and it will be very clear um, which candidates to vote for. So let's jump into these. The first one is the character question. The character question is big because if we elect righteous leaders, then it follows they will pass righteous laws and our country will be righteous. Conversely, if we elect unrighteous leaders, then they tend to enact unrighteous laws and our country follows suit. I want you to look what the Bible says in Proverbs 29.2. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. So how are we going to know if who we're voting for is righteous or unrighteous? Well, that's a good question. We're going to look at the character question. And character can be defined as who you are when no one's looking. For too long, I've heard people say, well, it doesn't matter what you do in your private life, your public life, you can still be a good politician. Does that even make sense to you? Okay, we can have a politician. And this was said. I don't know how many times you've heard it, but I I read a lot and I study a lot and I I listen to radio and, and this was said. It doesn't matter if he committed adultery. He can still be a good politician. And I'm going, wait, 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 wait. Okay, he stood in front of God and other witnesses and committed to this one person as the highest relationship in his life. He's going to cheat on the highest relationship in his life. But but that doesn't mean he'll cheat in office. Is there at least a possibility if he's committed adultery or she's committed adultery that they might cheat when they're in political office? Is that at least a possibility? Okay, thank you. Godly character is an outward reflection of an inner connection. When a person bows the knee to Christ, the Bible says that that because of our humility and coming to Christ, that he clothes us, he imputes his righteousness to us. We do not deserve it, but we're cleansed of our sin because of the blood of Jesus on the cross, and he clothes us in his righteousness. And and I begin to... uh, um, I begin to reflect his righteousness to others. I cannot muster up righteousness on my own. In fact, the Bible says there is not a single person righteous. Not a single one. So Jesus came as a baby. He came as a human. He lived the only perfect life, the only sinless life. He died on a cross. Three days later, he was raised to pay the price for your sin and for mine. So he conquered the greatest enemies of humans. Sin and death. Our greatest enemies, Jesus is victorious over those. And so he clothes us in righteousness when we bow the knee to him. So character then, godly character, comes from an inner inner connection with Christ that is shown outwardly. It's an inner thing that comes outward. So what you need to ask of a candidate is, are they producing godly character? But let's let's, let's not just stop with the candidate. You need to be asking yourself, am I producing godly character? Am I reflecting the characteristics of Jesus, the one I say I follow, to those who are around me. We have a serious problem when we look inside of ourselves to find truth because I'm a sinner. You're a moral failure too. And so we can't find it inside of us. Righteousness comes from the outside in through the power of the Holy Spirit. He takes residence inside my life and slowly but surely he begins to expand and knock out all of the stuff that that doesn't resemble Christ. And I begin to reflect him to others. When we elect the wrong type of people... Politicians who do not have character, then we continue this slide into unrighteousness. And Americans, you know, collectively, we've made some bad decisions. 
we have become um, experts at spiritual situational eth- ethics. Like in our schools, our educated people in our schools are teaching our children, our young people, that they're just educated animals. You're just animals. You can't help yourself when it comes to sex. So what do we do? We hand out condoms and we say, you can't help yourself because you're just like a dog that's in heat. But according to scripture, you're more than that. You have a higher calling than that. Read the book of Genesis. You are not an animal. So I just want you know, to break the tension from me even saying a condom in church. I want you to turn to somebody and say, Whew, I am not an animal. See, y'all were uptight, weren't you? I saw, I felt that all of the air went out of the room because I mentioned that word. He didn't say that C, did he? We are not animals. We're made in the image of God. That's not what, do not write that down. It's one of the six C's. <laughs> Look what my preacher said today. Okay, since we're not animals, this next um, C comes, can only be comprehended by those who are not animals. And this is the conscience question. An animal does not have a conscience. Everyone has a conscience. Some are better than others. But did you know that we actually have a national conscience? There are things in our country that everybody just knows you ought to do. Or there's things in our country that everybody just knows you ought not to do. All right, let me give you an example. Let's say we go through uh, uh, McDonald's and we get this big meal for our family. And we're driving and we're eating in cars and vans as God intended the family to do. And so you're driving down the road and you collect up all of the trash in one bag. How many of you would then roll down the window and just chunk it out on the side of the road? How many would do that? How many of you would be ticked off if you saw somebody do that? That is an example of our national conscience. Somebody had to teach you that because go to Haiti with me. Everybody throws their trash in Haiti. In fact, you'll see people walking down the road and they they finish something, they just chunk it on the side of the road. It's a national conscience or lack thereof because you have to be taught something to understand it. And and I think there is so much trash in Haiti when the actually I think they just wait on rainstorms, you know, and, and because it washes out in the ocean. I mean, you see the rivers, it comes down off the mountains and trash just goes flowing out in the ocean. And we see that and we go, oh no. But the Haitians, I think they're numb to it because they, they have not even paid attention to it for that long. They don't even notice the trash is there. That's just like a conscience. If you do not pay attention to a conscience, it can become numb. It can become calloused. And you have to be careful and guard against that. When there is a strong national conscience, there is, there is, uh, it requires fewer laws to keep the people in order. But whenever the national conscience is weak, you need more laws to try to control the people. And a conscience has to be informed. Somebody had to educate you on matters of conscience. When you were a kid, you kind of learned conscience the hard way. I mean, some of you, because you do something smack. You get hit on the head or on the backside, and after a while, you either duck, run, or you figure out that I shouldn't do that. Caleb, when he was little, he would come in and touch the heater. And I'm not kidding you, for 45 minutes... He would come in, touch heater, I'd smack his little hand, and he'd run down the hall cry. And he'd sit there and cry, ah! and then he'd get over it, and, and he'd get quiet, and, and Janie goes, here he comes. And sure enough, he'd walk back in there, and he'd touch it and run off. Then he got to where he'd look at me, touch it, and run down the hall. For 45 minutes, I smacked his little hand. I'm going, is he going to get it? And finally, he just said, no. <laughs> you know, he looks at the heater, he goes, No. Said he got conscience. Someone had to educate him that you don't jack with the heater. Okay, so that's how you learn things of conscience. I want you to look what the Bible says about it. Romans two, 
uh, verse 14. Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law. Now, this is a big deal. He's saying Gentiles, they don't have the Ten Commandments. They've never seen them. They weren't given to them. They don't have the advantages of God's people. Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. So these, these Gentiles, they don't have the things of God, but some of them are just born with this innate sense of right and wrong. And they just know these things. Or maybe they grew up in a family that they just knew these things. I mean, like the Ten Commandments. You, you, uh, you don't steal. You don't kill. You don't sleep with someone else's wife. Those are just things that, that the conscience tells you should not happen. And so they're saying, even these Gentiles who don't even know God, sometimes they do what's right and their conscience either defends them and says, good job, or their conscience accuses them and says, you messed up there. Based on whatever sense of right or wrong that you were born with, combined with what you were taught when you were growing up, gives you your conscience. Something or someone influenced your conscience. And so whatever it was informed you, and you make the daily decisions of life today based on how you were informed and brought up. And you should ask of a candidate who or what, whom or what is influencing their conscience because it will affect your family, it will affect your community, your church, and your nation. If a conscience has to be informed, then, then i got to ask you, what informed the conscience of our country from the beginning until now? Well, you don't have to look very far to figure it out. The second sentence of the Declaration of Independence says these. All these smart guys get together. Here's the second sentence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Self-evident means these are duh facts. These are so obvious that if, if you were to say them out loud, somebody go, duh. You can't even debate these things because they're so obvious. We hold these truths to be so obvious, self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So the duh facts are right there create, uh, written out for us. There is a creator who has given you and me certain rights. All men are created equal. And here are the facts. We are endowed by the creator with the right to life, the right to freedom, liberty, and the right to pursue happiness. Now, I want to ask, where did our founders get this stuff? It was from a sense of a personal and national accountability to a very personal creator God. Now, I'm not saying that every one of our founders was a Christian. I'm not saying that they all took the Bible seriously. There were all kinds of different th things. But collectively, as a nation, we said there are certain things that we are accountable to God for. And we are grateful to God for these things. We haven't always gotten it right because we've had slavery in this country. And, and we had slavery until somebody went, wait a minute, if all men are created equal... Doesn't that mean that a black man and a black woman are just as equal as a white man and a white woman? And, and people who had conscience said yes. And it shouldn't matter what our skin color is. Because if all men and women are created equal, well, yeah, we come later and, and somebody said, does that not mean that women are created equal? Because, you know, the women's suffrage movement, somebody said, aren't women equal? And then we get to the civil rights movement and, and somebody scratched their head and they go, separate but equal isn't really equal. See, we haven't always gotten it right, but our founding father said, we're going to struggle and we're going to strive to do what God says. We're going to be accountable to God. 
and all men are created equal means all men and women, all human beings are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And we're going we're gonna to rise and fall as a nation on whether we follow these principles and are accountable to God. So the abolition of slavery was an act of conscience. The women's suffrage movement was an act of conscience. The civil rights movement was an act of conscience. Laws and regulations were written as an act of conscience because of our national conscience. Now, years later, Abraham Lincoln, standing on the battlefield at Gettysburg, said this. And I'm just going to read the whole thing to you. I was just going to read a portion to you, but, but I read it, and it's, it's short, and it's good. The guy, if you know your history, the guy who spoke in front of him spoke for two hours, and we have no clue what he said. Nobody remembers what he said. Abraham Lincoln spoke uh, for two minutes. And, and listen to what he says in here, because he says, nobody's going to remember this. We do, because this was such a good speech. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth this continent, a new nation. Conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. There's that nasty little phrase again. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing that whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note, nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they, uh, they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced." It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion. And here it is. This is what I really want you to hear. Here's the sentence. That we here highly resolved that these dead shall not have died in vain. That this nation, and here's a phrase that had not really shown up anywhere in print before. That this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. This is a huge new phrase. Abraham Lincoln was saying, publicly saying, we're a nation accountable to God and grateful to God for all of the rights that He's given us. And everybody around agreed with him. I mean, even the folks that, that were for slavery, the pastors would stand up and say, thus says the Lord. And the people in the north that were preaching were saying, thus says the Lord. And then eventually we finally figured out that everyone being created equal means everyone is created equal. All right, fast forward to the 1950s. That little phrase, under God, was placed into the Pledge of Allegiance. When we say the pledge, we acknowledge that God is over all. We don't always get it right, but ultimately we answer to God for all of our choices. And for the first 200 plus years of our country, nobody argued that we are a country under God. And, and you've heard that phrase, um, it takes an act of Congress to do something. In 1956, literally an act of Congress happened and they passed a new motto for our nation. Do you know what the motto for our nation is? In God we trust. The Congress actually said... This is such a big deal that we're going to claim it had been on our coins and in our money since the Civil War. But they said, we are going to declare for all to hear. 1956, 56 years ago, our Congress said, we're going to declare that we are under God. In God, we trust. 
It's a big deal. And, and President Eisenhower signed it into law July 30th, 1956. In God we trust. Now, I was looking this up, and, and how many of you know Walmart's slogan? Save money, live better. You got it. The other one was always low. That was the old one. Okay, here's uh, Lowe's. Lowe's has a sl- new one. It's never stop improving. Yeah, you don't get that one. The old one was let's build something together. Papa John's, better ingredients, better pizza. Chick-fil-A is eat more. You got that one. Now, you could go anywhere in our nation and you could just spout those off. You can hold up signs, eat more chicken. You could go anywhere you wanted to, football games. You could go down the, the, the school, the hallways of the schools. You could go anywhere and repeat any of those slogans and nobody would say a thing. But can you imagine if tomorrow morning, every principal in every public school in the United States got on the PA system and said, Hey, kids, hope you have a great day. Never forget, we trust God. Can you imagine the uproar? And people with lawsuits, ooh, it would be ugly. Parents pulling kids out of school, atheists jumping up and down. You're establishing religion. You're forcing my kids. No, we're not. We're all we're simply doing is, is repeating the national motto. The more we distance ourselves from God individually, publicly, nationally, politically, the further we get from acknowledging that all of our rights come from God and, and we need to serve and thank that God. And, and here's the really, really scary part. When we remove God, something or someone else is going to take his place. See, if our right to life, liberty, and happiness is tied to the Creator God and you remove the Creator God... What comes in to take his place? See, there's lots of nations that have experimented with this. Godless nations. They've removed God. And when you remove God, you know what happens right after that? You also remove the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Don't ever discount the national or individual conscience. The individual conscience of a candidate. You need to ask. Who or what informed their conscience? Because every conscience is informed by something or someone. And we know that conscience can be weak. It can be ignored. So we're going to take it a step further. The next question is the conviction question. Conviction means the things I stand for come hell or high water. Look at Proverbs 28, 1 and 2. The wicked run away when no one is chasing them, but the godly are as bold as what? Lions. And this, oh man, I wasn't going to include this verse, but I kept reading and, and I had to put this verse in there. Where there is moral rot. I read that and I just stopped and I thought, is there moral rot in America? Okay, you, you acknowledge, look what it says. Where there is moral rot within a nation, its government topples easily. But wise and knowledgeable leaders bring stability. If you want stability in our nation... You elect men and women who are as bold as lions, who have convictions. If the fear of the Lord, we, we looked at this last week. Proverbs says the, beginning of, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you want wise leaders, you better find leaders who bow the knee to God. You need to notice where a politician takes a stand. Who, are they with, worth, who will they fight for no matter what? What do they believe is worth fighting for? It will tell you their convictions. For example, the gay agenda, and it is a, an agenda, tells us that um, we should compare their plight to the civil rights movement. 
Say what? If I were an African-American, I would be offended by this because I've known a lot of former homosexuals. I've never even heard of a former African-American unless you count Michael Jackson. (laughs) But I digress. You see, it sounds so politically correct to say, I should be able to marry whomever I want to marry. That's what the homosexual agenda says. So let's just think about this logically. All right. There are laws that say it's illegal to marry a child. Good law? Sure. I can't marry a close blood relative. Except in Louisiana. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. East Texas. They say that about us too. It's against the law to marry a group of people. That makes sense. I can't marry someone who is married. Woohoo! I can't marry an animal. It's against the laws of our lands, and and the laws of our land have Christian roots, whether anybody wants to admit it or not. So we can't marry in these five areas. But the homosexual community says, the government should keep its nose out of my bedroom. And I thoroughly agree, except when it makes perfect moral sense. Remember, where there's a strong national conscience, you don't need as many laws. Where there is moral rot, it takes a lot more laws to protect us. God has told us from cover to cover that there's only one context where sex should be celebrated. It should be practiced. It's in the bonds of marriage. And I will just say, thank you, Jesus, for sex. Sex is a great gift. Nobody agrees? All right, thank you. In marriage. And we've talked about at length the problems with, with sex outside of marriage. It damages your spirit. It damages your future. And God says no for a specific reason. When you come before Him in the bonds of marriage, it is a beautiful thing and it cements your marriage together. When, when it's outside of marriage, it's kind of like kindling. You know, kindling burns hot and then what happens to kindling? It quits burning. That's why people hop around from bed to bed to bed to bed because they're looking for that kindling feeling. When it's inside the bonds of marriage, that big old log, you know, that you get the fire burning and it's, it provides warmth for hours That's what a committed relationship with sex inside the bonds of marriage does. It provides warmth and security, not just for you and your spouse, but for the whole family when you do something right. Now, you're either going to follow God or you will be responsible to God for your sin. And sin just isn't a politically correct word nowadays, is it? We've drifted so far from God that now we're told you have to be tolerant. And here's the strange thing about tolerant. Even the term has been changed. Because the the original definition of the word means to be accepting. If you're a Christ follower, you're the most accepting person on the planet. We accept homosexuals. We accept adulterers. We accept fornicators. We accept all kinds of sinners because we are all sinners and we just claim it. People say nothing but hypocrites there. We're all hypocrites. We embrace the fact we're not proud that we're hypocrites, but we're honest that we're hypocrites in this church. If you're not a hypocrite, please quit coming. You're going to mess up our averages. And you need to go find some other perfect church to be a part of because you're just going to mess us up because we can't attain to what you are. But if you want to be real and honest, then, then, then this is where you're supposed to be. We're all sinners. But here's the new definition of tolerance. New definition of tolerance is, not only do I have to accept all of your sinful behaviors, I have to applaud them. Yes, yes, you go, you sin, you do everything against God. And if I don't applaud you, they call me intolerant. How whack is that? I am no more narrow-minded 
than the founder of my religion, Jesus Christ. And I don't claim to be perfect. I don't think anybody in here does. We love homosexuals. We love adulterers and fornicators and sinners. But we're not going to applaud sin. We're not going to approve of that behavior. And I, I do. I get, I get lots of questions about, uh, my friend is, is struggling with this, and can my friend come? And I said, man, we will welcome anybody. And our people, even if they know everything about you, are still going to love you because we've got some messed up people in this church. Yep. The one who speaks is, 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 no, no, wait, wait, sorry. We got some messed up folks, but, but we love people. We're not going to applaud sin. And, and we're going to be real about that when, when it comes up. We've got to have a standard. We're not going to approve it because where moral rot is, there's a standardless nation. There's standardless churches. We need leaders and, and with convictions like lions. That's what the Word of God says. There's a fourth question, uh, question you need to ask. Fourth C, the courage question. All right? Conviction is belief. Courage is action. That's the difference. Conviction is belief. Courage is action. Our beliefs influence our behavior. Is this person a person of courage? Or do they say, let's get a focus group together and let's kind of lick our finger and stick it up and see which, wind, which way the, the winds of opinion are blowing this week. And, and one week I'm going to be over here for this. And next week I'm going to be over here for this. And I'm going to change my mind. Or do they say... This is where I stand. I prayed this morning in our men's group that God would raise up some Daniels. You remember Daniel? They said, it is illegal to pray to God. And what did Daniel do? He opened his windows toward Jerusalem and he prayed every day, three times a day. It got him thrown into the lion's den. Did God protect him? You better believe it because that was a man with conviction. That was a man who had courage. We need more Shadrachs, Meshachs, Abednegoes. We need Josephs. We need Paul the Apostle. We need Simon Peter, James and John. We need more people who say, I am not going to cross this line come hell or high water. You can torture me. You can throw me in prison. You can kill me. But I'm not going to back down. Proverbs 11.3 says, The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. I read this in my uh, 30, one month to live, 30 days to live. Integrity is the opposite of image. You want to know what a candidate is like. Are they more worried about their image than they are about standing on their convictions? Just, just watch. Just read. Go, you can be as educated as you want to be before you vote. You look at that. And then I didn't include this one. This was my memory verse from last week. First Chronicles 29.7 says, I know, my God, that you search the heart and you're pleased with integrity. And it just pierced me when I read that integrity is the opposite of image. If I'm worried about what you think about me, I forget what God thinks about me, and I become a duplicitous person, and I don't want to be that. Ultimately, I will stand before God and give an account for everything in my life, and you will too. I want to please God. The next question is the compassion question. Compassion is love and action. And, and by this, well, let me read this verse and I'll tell you. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. 
We should help those who cannot help themselves. We are commanded by God, the one who gave us the rights, to help those who cannot help themselves. And so I ask of candidates, when, when I'm looking at a candidate, I look at their giving record. Do they give any money to anything? We have candidates in this election cycle who've given less than 1% of their income to any kind of charity. You know what that says to me? You don't give a rip about what you seem to claim that you are following. But there are other candidates that give 10, 20, some of them 30%. When someone does that, I go, maybe money isn't the most important thing in their world. Maybe power isn't the most important thing in their world. I want leaders in this church who give. Because you want to be like God. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that He what? Gave. You want to become like, like God. Become a giver. We're supposed to be re-gifters. How many of you are re-gifters? You get something, you go, and you just keep it in the box. Janie and I had, I don't know, 800 gifts. We didn't have that many. But, but we got all of these same things for, for uh, when in our... Because uh, we had... Two or three different showers, I don't even remember. We had one at her hometown and my hometown and then the church where I had been before I moved to this next church. We had all these showers and we had all these gifts that were multiples and they were stacked in our attic for years. And Janie just and they were brand new, but Janie just go up and say, re-gift that sucker. And I was like, man, I love that because it doesn't cost anything. And uh, what God is looking for is re-gifters of grace. God does not give you stuff for you. I'm sorry. It's not just for you. We talked about this years ago. It's the difference between a river and a reservoir. A reservoir has a dam and everything stops there. Go to my hometown, Borger, and we have a, a lake out there. It's not a lake. It's a, it's, a, it's a mud puddle now. Years ago, it was this massive lake, 120-something feet deep. Now, um, I went up there, I don't know, five or six years ago, and, and I parked where when, when I was a kid, we would launch a boat. It's like two miles from the end of the boat ramp to the water now. And what happened was New Mexico built a dam. And they're not getting enough water, so they're not releasing water. So Lake Meredith is a mud puddle now. I mean, houses plunged in value. There used to be a marina out there. That was one of the coolest things as a kid was to go to the marina and feed the ducks and catch carp and all that stuff. There's not anything left because somebody dammed up the flow. But a river just passes along what it's gotten. And God is looking for river people, re-gifting people who will say, God, I, I am blessed. And Janie and I have, have learned this firsthand. We've had people, every church we've been at, they're still friends. We go to their homes and they're like, oh yeah, anytime. And we have our rooms. Your room's ready for you anytime you come. They'll give us a key. They'll fix this food. And we're just like, we want to be like them. And, and some of our best friends in, in Arlington, they always say, God blessed us with this home. Years ago, it was far beyond what we deserved. And we said, when we first got into this home, because of the crazy circumstance, they said, God, this is your house. If anybody ever calls us up and needs a place to stay, I guarantee you, if you were to call and say, I need a place to stay, they'd say, come on. We'll, we'll fit you in. Regifters, that's what God's looking for. It's what I'm looking for in candidates. Proverbs 24, 11 says, Save those who are being led to their death. Rescue those who are about to be killed. If you say, we don't know anything about this, God who knows what's in your mind will notice. He is watching you and he will know. He will, regard, he will reward each person for what he has done and then I put next, or what he has not done. Whenever uh, 
I told y'all before we went to Haiti the first time that, that I was doing a, a Bible study called Experiencing God. And, and just in the midst of that, I felt like God say, you need to go to Haiti. This was right after the, the earthquake. And see, the, the conditions in Haiti were just as bad before the earthquake, just as bad economically. But nobody knew. And in January, was it 12th, 2010, when, when the earthquake hit, everybody knew, and I felt like I could no longer sit on the sidelines. I was going to be disobedient to God. And so I can't help every nation, but I can help Haiti. And, and this one church that we're helping, when the first year we couldn't go to church with them because they were meeting on the streets. Their building had been destroyed. They had a, a school where they taught kids because 90-something percent of kids go to private school. In, in Haiti, there is some public education, which is decent, but but it's it's less than 10 percent of the kids qualify and you still got to pay for a public education. So there's a lot of kids that, that don't have anything. It destroyed their school, destroyed their church. And so they were taking speakers out on the street. And, and if you've been those of you have been, it's not when I say a street, we're talking like an alley, a dirt messed up alley. It's not a street. And that's where they had church. And so in my heart, I thought we're going to plant right here and we're going to keep coming back here until they have a building. To worship in. Because that's our calling. And I told him. I stood up in front of him. I said you're my people. And I stood up next to Pastor Samson. And I said you know. I may not look Haitian. Your skin's darker than my skin. But you're my brother. And I'm going to keep coming back. And I'm going to keep bringing my church back. If you know of something. And you do nothing. God says I will hold you accountable for that. I don't want to be that type of person. I don't think you, you, you do either. God will repay you for how you live your life. And six, here's the last one. The constituency question. This is real simple. Who applauds the candidate? Who opposes the candidate? If the secular media is following, falling all over a particular candidate... Run, I, I, that's, that's, wah, 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 danger, danger, you know. That's the, that's the submarine, you know, when the, when the planes are coming. Dive, dive, get away. You really ought to be asking some questions based on who is supporting a certain candidate. Because, let me just tell you how to ruin your life. Can I do that for just a second? Hang out with people who lead you away from God. Guaranteed path to destruction. Let me tell you how to ruin the nation. Elect people who do not acknowledge the Creator God. And the nation will rot morally. It is high time the people of God got serious about our constitutional right to vote. And... and if there's ever a doubt, let me just tell you who to vote for. If there's ever a doubt, the candidate that claims Jesus. Vote for Jesus. How about that? You can't go wrong if someone is following Christ. Now, I'm not saying they're perfect because we mess up. But if they won't publicly acknowledge Christ, they're not privately acknowledging Christ. Because it says, when I bow my knee to Christ, He becomes my Lord. He becomes boss. And you remember that, that little thing Jesus said, if you're ashamed of my Father on earth, I will be ashamed of you in heaven. I don't want to be ashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God to, for salvation 
to all who believe, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. We're Gentiles. We need to be proclaiming that truth. Let's pray together. God, I want to confess the sins of our nation. And confess that we've not acknowledged that you are the author of life and all of the rights that we take for granted. I confess to you that we've turned our back on you and we've pursued our own way. And for far too long, the people of God have stood on the sidelines and done nothing. God, I'm not saying that, that, that you're calling us to, to take signs and protest, but you are calling us to stand up with conviction and say, this is right, this is wrong, God said so. Help us to acknowledge you, to thank you, and to lead others to you by our words and by our actions. We pray this in your name. Amen.